Hey there, I am Todd Brilliant, your host, and this is the Nice Work Podcast. It's a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we're dedicated to just making the world 10% nicer. You can learn more about what we're trying to do and join us on Instagram or Facebook at, at Super Nice Club or find us online, superniceclub.com, where you can get details about our mission to, like I said, make the world 10% nicer, at least to start, right? That's just the first rung on the ladder, I, 10%, and then we can go up from there. Also at the site, there's a whole bunch of super nice merchandise, shirts, hats, stickers, even cool Adidas tracks, jack, tracks, track jackets, and more to help you spread the word in your community around the simple idea of just being nice, making the world a nicer place. In fact, check it out. If your super nice merchandise doesn't help you start nice conversations with total strangers, you can get your money back. No problem at all. Just let us know. Uh, you can also, if you want to get even more involved in what we're up to, you can text, get out your phone, text the words, nice work right now to 310-421-0393. 310-421-0393. That's the Super Nice Club community. Uh, the insider community, and you'll get invited to local events, giveaways, and all kinds of stuff, especially post-COVID. Anyway, on to the nice stuff, on to the podcast, on to the guest. This week's guest. This week's guest is none other than my friend, Chid Liberty. He's the founder of Liberty and Justice and also Made in Africa. In addition to his work at Liberty and Justice and Made in Africa, Chid served as the entrepreneur in residence at the University of Liberia's Monrovia Business Startup Club, which, which was founded by Spark, a Dutch NGO for whom Chid manages the Ignite Fund. He also speaks internationally on social entrepreneurship and impact investing, uh, recently at Harvard, Stanford, and Princeton universities, as well as the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology in Australia and the IE Business School in Madrid, Spain. Chid was recognized by President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf in her State of the Nation address for his leadership in shaping trade policy and indigenous Liberian entrepreneurship. He is a recipient of the 2014 Salzburg Global Fellowship, 2014 Global Innovation Summit Ecosystem Award, the New African Press 50 African Trailblazers Under 50, and there's just a bunch. There's so many other awards that he get. You get it, right? He's a he's a he's a rock star. But right now, right now, Chid and his team, and this is what we're gonna talk about in the podcast, um, are revolutionizing how the business of fashion and apparel manufacturing is done in Africa with a new model that empowers and enriches workers and investors alike. And you know, it's a model that can really expand to any corner of the world. At the ones at least where people believe in fairness, women's rights, and the eradication of poverty. You know, and if you're into any of these things, then you're listening to the right podcast. And if you're not, if you're not into those things, maybe stop what you're doing and check yourself, you know, into a mental hospital. Or maybe just, I don't know, swallow a bottle of Oxy. <laughs> JK, JK. Just kidding. Haha. <laughs> not super nice. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we talk about Chid's plans and we also get into his father's story. His father's story is super interesting. His father was a true blue Liberian patriot who I know would be so damn proud of what his son is up to. Chid, Chid is genuinely on track to become the LVMH, the Louis Vuitton, sorry, of Africa. And, and to even move beyond that sort of tired model into something bigger and better for all stakeholders, including the people who purchase the garments. Right, because you're a stakeholder when you're you get it, right? You want to feel good about what you bought and where your money went and what it does to change the world and make it nicer. You understand, right? Nod your head. Okay, we got it. And then after all that, you'll be treated to super naive white guy questions about Africa and colonialism that Chid answers with grace, uh, with the injection of a lot of really great history, and some takes that may surprise some of you. Oh, and there's a Shakespearean tragedy that he relates about toward the end, about one of my heroes. It's so worth the wait. So turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Chid Liberty. Chid, Chid Liberty, welcome to the Nice Work Podcast. Super, super great to have you on. It's super great to be here, Todd. It's been a minute since, since we've talked, so it's great to catch up. Where are you right now? I'm in New York. New York, New York. Uh, just got back from Florida from some time in Miami. I drove there, drove both ways, actually. Uh, my wife and I, 
And uh, now I'm in New York, not too far from from Wall Street, uh, which is a funny place to go to work every day. But, you know, I enjoy it. What's it like in New York right now? It, it was it was great for a while. I mean, I, I hate to you know celebrate anything about COVID because obviously the loss of health and the loss of life. You know, for me, I've been been able to drive in. We live in Williamsburg, so I can just like drive over the bridge every day. My office is on like is one Liberty, you know, right, you know, next to Wall Street. I'm parking in front of my my building every day. It's super chill. Like that's not something that you could do, you know, a year ago. And so, and and in fact, it's funny that you mentioned it because like getting ready to do this, this podcast was really when the first time that I was like driving around downtown and I like couldn't find parking. So like people are starting to come back in a big way and it is starting to feel like New York again. But listen, man, I mean, again, I know it's hard for some people to like compartmentalize the like loss of health and loss of life. There's no, there, there's nothing good about that whatsoever, but it was in some ways nice to be in like a, a, a mellower New York. So you're back at work and your offices, are these the offices of Liberty and Justice? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Liberty and Justice is, 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 um, in like a transaction. I, I'm being coy. Cause I like some of it, is public. Some of it's not public. So we're in the middle of a transaction. The, the surviving company is going to be called Made in Africa. So I'm, I'm at the office that Made in Africa works out of. Okay. So I might slip up and refer to Liberty and Justice. but we, That's fine. You can call okay. it L&J. Liberty and Justice still fully exists. We just okay. now have basically a new parent company. Listeners, this is a really cool company doing really cool things with really cool people. Um, but, but, but I'm just going to tease that because I kind of want to back it up and figure out how, how Chid got there. Right. I want to figure out what led you there, because so much of this podcast is about people pursuing their passions, turning their passions awesome. into their careers. Uh, and yeah. career means success, means financial stability, all of these things in a lot of cases. Right. That makes a, a passion so much more fulfilling and scalable and viable when it's providing for you. So before Made in Africa, you've been in New York for a while doing a lot of different things. But even before you got to New York, you had kind of an interesting upbringing. You, you, you guys, you and your family kind of moved around a little bit before you landed in New York, right? Without a doubt. Yeah. I'm, I mean, one of the things that I think I'm mo- most happy about, about my childhood, and, and, you know, I think there's so many different ways to remember your childhood. But for me, what I really think about is, is, is really having the privilege of growing up on three different continents you know, uh, Africa, specifically West Africa and Liberia, Europe, specifically at the time, West Germany, before the Berlin Wall came down and when it was still West Germany and the capital was Bonn, where, where my family lived. And then and then in California, in Palo Alto, and then eventually in Wisconsin, which might as well be a different continent than Palo Alto. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I just got to grow up in like ways and, and really, I think, understand different cultures and similar causes like there's so many similarities between culturally between like people in Wisconsin and people in West Germany for instance that were pretty dislike or, or dissimilar to obviously our, our West African culture and our Liberian culture and then uh, California which I think uh, stands on its own as a as a very unique place so Wisconsin I, I don't have a lot of familiarity with Wisconsin I've only been maybe once or twice but what, what was the connection there? Is that all the German immigrants that were going there? How did you get? To yeah, Wisconsin? yeah. I mean, you know what? Wisconsin uh, is like a surprisingly fascinating place. You know, it was, it was like the last place in America to have a have a socialist mayor. It, it's like it's just like a really bad ass uh, place. It has like a lot of sort of sort of northwestern European. Uh, uh, attitudes towards work, towards family. Of course, the weather was very similar to what we saw in Germany with snow, you know, full four seasons, snow, so on and so forth. And, you know, for us, that was very different than Palo Alto or, or, or Monrovia. So, so yeah, uh, Wisconsin is an amazing place. You know, my dad, bizarrely enough, when wh- why we moved there is he was a visiting scholar uh, with like the Bradley Institute, which is like a ridiculously like, hardcore conservative institute that like published all this crazy racist stuff and supports all these other just like 
weird things that have like caused a lot of like the the racial disagreements in the United States over the last you know years and so it's like hilarious because you know my dad is obviously not a racist and he's he's not <laughs> yeah I think he's I think even you know way to the left of, of me at the end of the day and so yeah it always like makes me laugh to sort of think about him as this like post-colonial African scholar working for like this super uh, <laughs> um, conservative organization that wanted to like collect his writing. So how did he juggle that? Just sort you know, of, it's a good you know, question. I mean, I, I don't think that he, <laughs> quite frankly, really wanted to be there. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't really think my dad wanted to be out of Liberia. My, I think the, 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 the best part of his life was when I think he was teaching um, in Liberia, or I guess when he was representing Liberia as an ambassador when we were in Germany. But I think like Liberia was such an important part to his life and to his soul that, you know, that that's where his happiness came from. And then, you know, when we, you know, uh, we, my family had to go into exile. He got in a little bit of a fight with uh, the president of Liberia over some some fake news type stuff. Uh, some some America in 2020 stuff and some right. Liberia 1980 right. stuff and, right. uh, and so yeah he he had to he had to bounce and we obviously all had to bounce with him so at that point you know it was no longer about like finding your passion it was like I got four kids and a wife and you know I'm not from here and I just need a check <laughs> right. I mean, this is interesting. This is super interesting. We'll just go down this path for a second, if you don't mind. So your dad had a lot of pride in Liberia and wanted to see, 100%. I'm, I'm assuming, wanted to see Liberia develop and grow as an African power, and I'm assuming a world power, right? Yeah. What was his vision for Liberia? Was it a... Was it a, a the leading nation within Africa, a, a socialist leading light, or what? I mean... What, what was the idea? Great, great question. No, I mean, the, the beautiful thing um, is that like the, the, the Liberia that my dad grew up in was the, the leading com- country in, 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 right. in Africa right. in many ways. And, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about like the 1960s and, you know, late 1950s, 1960s and all the countries in Africa that became independent. Liberia had been in independence since 1847. And, you know, it was the first independent republic. The, the only older black republic uh, than us is, is Haiti. And then, of course, you have Ethiopia, the empire Ethiopia before sort of the, the more democratic Ethiopia. But, but so, so Liberia was really trailblazing. And I think specifically what made Liberia very special was the fact that it did have a somewhat, I call it, you know, conservative view of the future of, of Africa. And I think that especially from like the 1940s through the end of the 1970s, it was the poster child of like what could happen in Africa and for black self-rule and self-governance. I mean, it was an amazing growth story. It was growing faster than I believe Japan, South Korea, China. Wow. China was like a wow. joke compared to Liberia's per capita GDP right. and other things. And so you had this this country of a bunch of, let's just call a spade a spade, super bougie black folks who had a history of being African-American. And and in many ways, you know, my dad, I think, was a bit torn because he had come and done his Ph.D. at Stanford in the 1960s. And so he was here for like the Civil Rights Act and like the broader human rights movement throughout uh, the world. And and Liberia was having a little bit of that moment also because, yes, there, my dad was part of a, you know, crazy political class of people. His dad was a senior senator. Uh, his you know, great-grandfather was speaker of the house, blah, blah, blah. So he kind of came from the people who, who, who ruled the country. Um, but he had, you know, I think some leanings towards a more inclusive country. So I think he was kind of torn. On the one hand, he was like proud of like who he was and, and, and knew that, that the way that Liberia led and our political leanings and everything were actually better than most places, not just in Africa, but in the world. And then on the other hand, he was like, 
all right, but how do we make it more and more inclusive? And I think that he actually leaned, you know, his friends were like radicals, like military. His friends like supported the military coup in Liberia. His friends supported uh, revolution, blah, blah, blah. And I think my dad, kind of like me, is just like a little bit more mellow. Like we get where everybody's trying to go, but let's not get there in a way that's stupid and ruins the country for 40 years as has happened. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's taken a hit, and it's still is it, it what you're doing it at Liberty and Justice made in Africa is part of the restoration of contemporary Liberia. Fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I would say. I mean, I think that the restoration of contemporary Liberia requires so much more. But I think that we're like taking we're, we're taking one step towards building what I think is is a more uh, inclusive and 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 just a better society and and specifically what we care about is making sure that women are able to work and support themselves uh, I think formally Liberia has as great of laws uh, for women but we have a very um, we, we basically have two systems of laws in Liberia, the sort of formal and then the, the informal. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, a lot, a lot of women and a lot of women that, that we've worked with, for instance, you know, are, are survivors of, you know, child marriage, um, and, and other just like really repressive, uh, practices that we wanted to, um, give them, give them freedom to get out of um, by something as simple as having a job. That's that's great. And this idea that you can create a successful enterprise that also does the, you know, the double duty of profit. You know, you can profit financially. You can also profit in terms of, you know, human capital and, and making the world a better place. That's so, that's so damn super nice club. I love it. And so I want to, I'm just going to read your company's vision and mission statements because they're totally inspiring to me. I've read a lot of, we've all read a lot of vision and mission statements. When you're, <laughs> you know, when you're just shopping or when you're helping your friend like analyze a, a pitch deck of their company or whatever it is. We've read a lot of these and most of them are, frankly, they're bullshit. I'm just going to say it. I love yeah. these. All right. So the vision of Liberty and Justice. Check this out, everybody. Liberty and Justice is committed to a future in which producers and consumers are completely aligned in making economic choices that result in the eradication of poverty, the responsible stewardship of the environment, and the empowerment of workers through the fair exchange of quality goods and services. That's a great vision. Did you hear that? Producers and consumers are completely aligned in making economic choices, all right? Empowerment of workers through fair exchange. That's spot on. The mission, the mission here of Liberty and Justice, Liberty and Justice was established to transform the apparel supply chain from worker exploitation and environmental degradation to partnership and sustainability. Now, a lot of y'all probably already know or you've, you've heard in the back of your mind that, that, that um, apparel, that consumer, the clothing is a gnarly business. Right. And when it comes to worker exploitation, that supply chain is wicked environmentally. And that's, you know, Forever 21, I guess, is going bankrupt because it ultimately didn't work. But being able to manufacture clothes that, that you can go buy brand new for six bucks, eight bucks on a rack, somebody is paying the price there. And that somebody is always the workers and the earth. So this mission <laughs> yep. that Liberty and Justice has is 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 huge, and I love it. Anyway, so I Thanks, think that's man. fantastic. No, that's I really wonderful. You know, it's great because sometimes you start to feel like, yeah, you're like everybody else's vision statement, but it's like beautiful to hear you, um, you sort of. Uh, uh, it's 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 beautiful to hear the inspiration in your voice around it. You're like taking me back to 2008 when we like started crafting it. Yeah. <laughs> go. Well, I also know that you walk the walk. So I, you know, I understand that yeah. we get, we get so jaded. We read, like you can read Amazon's mission statement and it probably sounds like they're trying to save the world. Right. <laughs> um, which is nonsense. Um, and, uh, but you know, since I know you walk the walk, it, it does, it does give it so, some more gravitas and dimensionality. Yeah. But it's also the benchmark of what super nice business can, uh, should, and in your case, does look like. You know, so yeah. I love that. So anyway, that's the Amazing. setup. That's the setup. I know you've got these, you know, you've got uh, Liberty and Justice, 
Liberia, you have the Made in Africa factory network, but can you just kind of lay it on us, like what you're doing over there, what uh, L&J is, what the Made in Africa factory uh, network is, um, and we'll just run from there. Yeah, cool. I mean, I, I guess the, the 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 biggest thing that I'll say right now is that we're we're, we're changing a lot. Like we're going through a pretty major um, transformation. What we started as, um, and I think that the our website really reflects this well, is a fair trade manufacturer, and really the first fair trade certified apparel manufacturer on the continent of Africa, and. Um, our goal there was just to help brands like you talked about Forever 21s, but you can imagine all the different brands in in the world, but especially in the U.S., Europe, um, and now Asia, who um, have created sort of a race to the bottom uh, when it comes to making apparel. Like we want to find the cheapest place to do it. And so who gets, who benefits as you so eloquently said is like the factory that can pay people less and the factory that can externalize as much of the cost by polluting the earth or whatever, they make all the money. So we started thinking, you know, I'm I'm like, you know, I, I think I'm like appropriately officing down on wall street because i always try to find like little things in companies that you know other people haven't thought of and just try to build an advantage of them so i was like listen all you guys are so focused on wages 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 and that's why you keep going to cheaper and cheaper countries but like you know africa has this completely unexploited thing called african growth and opportunity act from the united states which allows us to ship to the united states duty-free and to give you an idea, the duty on a T-shirt is probably like 16, 17 percent. The duty on like a pair of men's pants is like 28, 29 percent. Oh, OK. And so I was like, listen, I can afford to pay people a fair wage because I'm going to make it up on the duty, basically. And I can invest in thing, you know, match savings accounts for the workers uh, uh, we have lending programs, we have savings programs, we have, we have all the literacy programs, we have all this stuff that we can do for the worker that normally um, other factories can't do. And, and the way that I was sort of structuring that we pay for that is basically in the savings that I'm creating people on duty, you know, like on a 28% pair of pants, you know, I can still come in way cheaper than China because, you know, whatever, and, and I can still pay the worker more because I'm going to give that I'm going to give the the worker a piece of that duty. I'm going to give the customer a piece of that duty, and I'm going to take a piece of that duty. So that was kind of, <laughs> that was kind of the idea. Oh, that's great, and that is something that hadn't been taken advantage of before. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, listen, there are a lot of people that were going definitely not, of course, in Liberia, and what. What we were doing that was different is that, um, you know, it had it had been taken advantage of, usually by Asian factories, um, Asian owners, Chinese, Taiwan, Hong Kong. They would come mostly to South Africa, and uh, they would set up factories there. And like when you know, we used to be under a quota system in the WTO, not to get a little bit too wonky on people, but basically every country could only export a certain amount to, to America is like our way of making sure that, you know, pre-Trump that yeah. China doesn't yeah. get out of hand basically. Right. And essentially, so what the Chinese did is when they would start getting close to hitting their quota, they would send all the extra orders to their African factory. So it's still basically owned by, by Chinese. It was just happened to be in Africa. And then basically the, that whole quota system like went away in 2013. And that basically decimated the apparel industry in Africa altogether, like across the, like exports went way down and so on and so forth. So I think what we were doing was sort of like breathing new life, into this industry it had never existed specifically in Liberia, which is where I was from and what I was most interested in. But we were kind of coming there to breathe new life into a new industry uh, in Liberia and help to revive a broader industry throughout the continent. Oh, that's great. When did that start? When did you start up in, in? So we opened our factory in April, 2010. Okay. So 10 years, good for you. 10 years, man. 10 years, making it 10 years is a hell of an accomplishment in any business. 
Thank so, you, dude. Props for that. Now, do you remember? I don't remember what what it was called. Yes, I do. Eden. Do you remember Bono was doing some first yes. grade thing? What I always felt skeptical of that, and maybe it wasn't fair. I also didn't like his his designer. I can't remember the guy's name. Yeah. Um, but uh, what happened with that? Um. Well, I mean, technically, they ended up selling to LVMH. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but they sold to LVMH, I think, on a bro deal. Like, bon- from what I heard, like, Bono was on a yacht with, like, the head of LVMH. And he was like, do me a favor, bro. Take this off my balance sheet type, type situation. Um, but, yeah, no, you know, I, I don't really think uh, that was really set up for success for a lot of different reasons. And I think they ran into a lot of the problems that, um, that you need to avoid when you're working in Africa. Africa is a very um, uh, interesting market. And I think that it's, it's, it's really hard. In fact, I just wrote a great paper about this at Oxford about like, um, it's really hard for outsiders to like go to Africa and get this right. Um, and I would in many ways, including include myself in that group. Like I hadn't been in Liberia since I was 18 months old. And as an outsider coming from Silicon Valley, I was like, okay, here's how I want to run a company. And there were just so many things that I was doing that were so off um, and just set me back so far. But, you know, theoretically, those things all made sense in my head. So it was like, well, why aren't they happening? And it just it takes you a while to get your bearings and to understand, you know, what the political levers are and, and what the cultural levers are. You would think that you're inspiring your workers by saying this to them because that worked in, you know, San Francisco, but like my workers actually needed to hear something completely different. I mean, a great example is like, of course I want everybody to call me Chid, but in Liberia, they have to call me boss man. Like they just want to call me. And I'd be like, no, don't call me boss man. That's weird. You know, right. like yeah. I have people who are way older than me being like boss, man, boss man, sir, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, guys don't do that shit. But for them, it makes them really comfortable. Like they don't want to work in a place where there's not a boss man. A boss man to them means insurance. A boss man means paycheck. A boss man means counselor. You know, they, they, we live in a society that's based off of like the chief and the big man. And so me coming in, wanting to be in my hoodie and my board shorts and be like, no, we're all in a flat organization, didn't work there. It just, the, the workers didn't like it themselves. They felt weird about it. You know what I mean? So, so no, no, no ping pong table in the, uh, in the office. No ping pong table. <laughs> no, no massages for the workers, even though we should have right. done that because it's a factory and they do, they do really, really hard work. But yeah, I just had to, to, to understand that many times when working in Africa, you, you have to, you know, there, there is a beautiful local culture that, that came about for a reason. And so a lot of my, a lot of the change in my life has been um, accepting those, those local customs as, as valid and, and as amazing. And I think another thing is like, people always think about like things like corruption in Africa and what we did in, in this paper, which I'm sure nobody will read except for a couple of migrators or something. But we talked about, how one everybody thinks that things aren't going to work in africa because of corruption like africans are corrupt and then number two so as a response to that they set up governance so like the board of directors or the people who finally decide to make this this investment are usually like all white people or like all americans or all europeans or all chinese or whatever and what we realized was that like really there was far more corruption that happened in that situation than when you had a mostly African or mostly insider governance. And so what I can likely say is that like, it is no doubt that LVMH or that Bono would fail in Africa because there weren't enough Africans in real decision-making places to actually make it work. And no matter what, there's going to be that friction. You can almost, you can tell me how many, what percentage of a board is African for an African project. And I can basically tell you if that project's going to fail or not. That, I mean, it seems to make a lot of sense. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. seem like rocket science though, right? Uh, there's some, so there's some hubris involved when you're coming over and, and basically trying to show somebody how to do things. Yes. And they pick up on that. So 
half of your company, virtually half of your company is owned by its worker owned corporation, right? Yeah. Was yeah. that a challenge? Were worker co-ops uh, a new model or was that something that, that uh, took some getting used to as well? Like, hey, there's a boss man, but you're also the boss man yourselves. Was totally. There? I mean, no, I, I think I think you're hitting on, on a great point. Like we thought worker ownership would be great because so many people in Liberia are used to being taken advantage of. And so we were like, listen, you're an owner, you're a co-owner with us. And, you know, we, we did a whole like training around it, like what it means to be a shareholder and how we vote and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, once again, I'll say that um, that people people got that pretty quickly. I think people, you know, capitalism is a pretty simple thing. It's like <laughs> you, you put in money, you take some out. It, it's supposed to be more than you put in and, and everybody's happy. So everybody got that. But still, they loved the hierarchy. Like they needed the chain of command. They needed the boss man. You know, they felt way more comfortable when I was wearing a suit. And, and when I was like, you know, uh, so, 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 yeah, I would say that, that people did love uh, the benefits. I would say even more than the worker ownership benefit. They love the savings match. So there, there were some benefits that were even better for them. But, but I think one area that worker ownership really was game changing was that I don't know another place in Liberia that had a more committed workforce. I mean, they really took themselves as owners, um, you know, beyond the potential for dividends or like, you know, an exit or anything like that. They really saw themselves as, as, as owners and still today act as owners um, and sort of protectors. And I think that that's a, a pretty powerful thing. I love it. So there's another part of that. Not only are they, and correct me if this information is outdated because you're going through changes right now, but not only uh, do the workers own 49% of the company, but there's also uh, a Tides Foundation supported Liberty and Justice Community Development Fund. Right. And Tides there Foundation is. Is, is a great, great. If you, if you ever worked in the NGO world, Tides Foundation is incredibly reputable, done decades of incredible work. Um, so this is top tier partnership here. What, what, what's what are they doing? What is that development fund? So, you know, when we um, got on the ground in Liberia, we kind of had some some super interesting ideas about stuff that we wanted to do. And there were certain things that you can ask investors to do. Okay, we're, we're having a factory, so we're going to hire workers, and we're going to have this, this, and this benefit. But then there are certain things where, of course, the investors are like, why are we doing that? Like, again, we're here to, to, to make a profit. And so what we kind of decided to do is create what, you know, at the time was considered a hybrid model of both a for-profit and a non-profit and and so some of the programs that we ran from literacy to the savings match to whatever sort of were done through the nonprofit arm of liberty and justice and then as you mentioned we partnered with tides who who sort of administers that fund for us uh now it's called madeinafrica.org as of the end of this transaction yeah so so the the real idea there what it started off as is like Okay, well, how can we get donors to to help with all these sort of innovative and experimental things we want to do within the context of our workers in our factory, including research projects that we led and, you know, benefits for the workers and just all this different stuff that we wanted to try out. And then what I think it's 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 going to evolve into now is really like a, a center for and sort of a, a permanent source of capital for for Africans and specifically African high culture. One of the biggest changes that we're going through right now is I think we were going into liberty and justice really interested in manufacturing. And the reason that we're into manufacturing is because we were like, we got to get Africans jobs. So like, let's build factories. And one of my learnings, you know, credibly being on the ground for 10 years and then also getting to spend so much time in New York is I think I, you know, I'm a person who kind of like started in the creative industries, but then kind of just was like, we're going to Africa. We need jobs. Like, let's manufacture. 
The truth is the gold of Africa is in its creativity. And yeah, when I started, I was like filling our order book with American brands and exporting to the U.S. and so on and so forth. But I think now we've kind of come to this place where we're like, you know, the real gold are these African brands. They're just undercapitalized. They don't have enough. So like, you know, we started this brand uniform kind of as a Kickstarter project, fun thing to try out. We really liked being in the brands business. So we went out and, you know, we've just about closed about 200 and $30 million to basically start like a home for brands in the African context. And so it's a very, very, very different company than just being a manufacturer. Being the manufacturer is great, but now we actually will, will own a lot of the brands and manufacturer. That's great. So you've taken your learning so far. It's basically you're scaling it up what you've learned to date through Uniform and L&J Liberia. Is that a fair assessment? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and these factories, would they also be worker-owned? Or is that a different... Um, a different no. I, I mean, our factory in Liberia, I would always say, is, is a little bit of like a model factory. It's almost like your... It's, it's like our lab, man. It's, our, it's, yeah. it's where we like to try out really progressive, cool stuff. And then we partner with other factories. Our factories in, Mor- in Morocco is our largest mm-hmm. partner. Um, and then we partner with factories in, you know, Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, um, and, and all of them have different stuff going on. Some of them are fair trade certified. Some of them are whatever certified. Some of them are got certified. So yeah, we're, we're just, we're, we're pretty open. We just want to make sure that like, you know, they're doing the right thing and, and, and we have a direct relationship and can invest in the workers. So that is, that's your network, the Made in Africa factory network, right? Totally. totally. What's the goal? What's your, what's your big dream goal for that network? Give me, give me the, the ultimate scenario for MIA just blowing up. What happens? What's it look like? So uh, I guess the easy answer is um, the black LVMH. And, and, and everybody's saying that right now, or the black caring group. Everybody's saying that right now. A couple other groups are saying that, and I would, I would, um, I don't want to get in trouble. No, it's it's I'll okay. Just say, if no, 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 no. Have different goals. I'll just say I mean, the same no, goals. No, no, no. I mean, I don't really, I don't really think they. I don't, when they say they're the black LVMH, it's like, but you're not really LVMH. Like you're a website or something like that. Like LVMH is obviously this very, you know. Um, prolific company and if you really look at the stuff that like bernard arnold their ceo the richest man in europe mm-hmm. is doing it's really around how to take french culture and basically have their company be the the global ambassador for french culture you know he always t- tells a story about how he went to New York for the first time, I think in his 20s or 30s. And I think his, you know, he was like a trust fund kid. His dad ran a really big um, engineering company. And, you know, he asked the taxi driver on the way from JFK. He was like, hey, do you know the president of France? And the taxi driver was like, nope. And he's like, well, do you know Christine Dior? And he was like, of course, everybody knows Dior. And so he was like, listen, people know more about France because of fashion than they do because of our politics. And so at the end of the day, if I'm going to be anything to the world, I want to I want to be the, the purveyor of French culture in the world. And similarly, what Made in Africa has become or, or I think once everything is, is announced is you'll kind of see that we're kind of like the ambassadors of African culture for the world and specifically African high culture. I think a lot of people sort of look at Africa and they start, you know, they want to like give you their, like I was in the village and I made a bead necklace or something like that. What I've been blown away with is like, and you know, everybody's getting a piece of that now because you're starting to hear the music. But you know, when I was first in Africa in 2009, 2010, even 2008, and I would go to the club and I would hear David O and Wizkid and, you know, early Burna Boy. And I was like, whoa, I was like, what is this music? Debange, you know? Um, and then, you know, when Kanye signed Debange in 2013, I was like, of course, like, and literally the story is that, that Debange just saw Kanye in a, 
in a in an airport and he's like, hey, just listen to this, gave him his headphones. And Kanye was like, what is this? Like, who's producing this? And he's like, we are. And, you know, so so I could tell that the music was going to blow up. The second thing that I could tell is that the fashion was going to blow up. And of course, as we've seen, like if you've been to Basel any of the last couple of years, like, you know, the only people, people, people are only messing with like black artists right now, like Amako, Kehendi, like all these dudes are sort of like the purveyors of culture. And, if, and even look at Bernard Arnault, like the two biggest creative directors that he signed over the last couple of years are Virgil Abloh and Rihanna, two black folks, two Africans, Virgil's from Ghana and from Wisconsin. He went to Wisconsin. Long story short is what you'll see from Made in Africa is really like a black owned version of, 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 of LVMH that helps to be um, uh, the ambassador for African high culture throughout the world. And on the back end of that, we'll be supporting hundreds of thousands of cotton farmers, factory workers, and so on and so forth. Of course. Well, that's great. That's a perfect answer. It's a huge goal. Knowing you, it's an attainable goal. So it'll be fun to watch. Fun to watch that happen. I want to back You're that too up. Too kind, man. Fingers crossed. You're a hard worker. You know the right people. You're a really smart guy. You have a genuine passion and a family history for this through your, you know, your father. I don't know. We didn't talk about mom. We can. Um, yeah. Those are the She's things cool for. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> 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 All right. So we're gonna back it up a second here. You said that that. Uh, you started in the creative industries. Yeah. Um, give a little bit more on that. So, so my, my, my first uh, company, I started when I was 16. If any of you guys have heard of a great brand called The Record Company, Chris Voss and two others, really amazing sort of Americana, like real rock and roll, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I would say that I managed the, the precursor to that band, which was called Freshwater Collins when I was 16. They were sort of a, a local college band. And um, I had been working a little bit for, for Jeff Castellas as an intern and had become really close to the guys in, in Citizen King who were signed to Warner Brothers at the time and had released their, their hit single, Better Days. And I, I just, you know, there, there's not a lot going on in Milwaukee. So like... You know, the fact that you have one band that signed to a major label <laughs> and like what is it's like, whoa, this is this is like wild stuff. And so, yeah. So so from a very young age, I just kind of got involved in the music business and and was managing first that artist. Then when I was 19, my freshman year of college, because basically my parties, I was a manager, but really I was a promoter because I was the one promoting all these shows in, in Milwaukee and Chicago and Madison and everywhere else. So, like, I think my reputation as a promoter sort of preceded me. And <laughs> there was this this uh, very interesting character. He, he would definitely be a character in the movie. Uh, I'm not going to say I really – let's put it this way. I didn't do any KYC work about the source of his funding. Uh, <laughs> but he was he was interesting. KYC is know your customer. Sorry. I, I guess I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. feeling I right now. Yeah. Um, so he was really interested in um, – and I think getting into an alternative line of business, if you know what I mean. And yeah, so he, yeah. he like heard about this African kid that was throwing all these big shows and like what goes better than like the underground weed business and, and concerts. So he was like, yo, let's go into business together. And I was like, yeah, you know, buy my business. And so convincing him to, to buy the company and we became partners for the next couple of years. And that was really cool. You know, we did, you know, I think the biggest reggae festival in the Midwest. We did a ton of raves. This is when, like, raves were, like, the biggest thing. So we did all these, you know, 50,000-person raves in Chicago and just crazy, crazy stuff. It was it was a really fun way to spend your first couple years of college. And then, like, basically my contract was done, and I had an itch to move out to California and, you know, I wanted to, like I said, there were there were some unsavory characters in the in the mix back then. And I, I thought uh, it was probably time for me to bow out from uh, influence of, of unsavory characters. So I thought, you know, I'd move out to California and, you know, in a in a in a bit of a weird move, my, my best friend, his girlfriend and I sort of, you know, drove to all these different towns in California, I think, um, uh, she wanted to move to 
San Francisco. He wanted to move to Arcata and I wanted to move to San Diego because I'd always go to Southern California for work back then. Right. And and we ended up picking this little town called Sebastopol, which was like our grand compromise. It was like a little close enough to the beach, to Bodega Bay, but like, you know, close enough to San Francisco, but still like kind of Arcata-ish, you know. And so we just moved there and we were just like maxing out for a little while. Like we were like, I just kind of like sold out of my company. I mean, we're young. This wasn't like million dollar deals, but you know, we had like a little bit of spending money and we just kind of lived there and like, like didn't do anything. We were like straight up Larry David. Like we didn't do anything. Uh, <laughs> not a lot like to a, do in Sebastopol. Totally. It was like a show about nothing. And then, you know, slowly got back into um, doing other uh, cool stuff, really on a project basis, like stuff in tech, stuff in finance. And then, you know, finally, after a long time, got like a job job uh, with a company called Trilogy, a tech startup, did that for three and a half years. And then I just like got the entrepreneurial itch to like go back and start my own thing. And I hadn't been in Liberia since I was 18 months old. And, you know, my father had passed away when I was 18. So I, I just had this longing to like go understand what like Liberia and that whole life was about. So you bail from Sebastopol and you head to Liberia. That's a pretty big change of scenery. I went to Liberia, Liberia, started a company. It was amazing. I won a lot of awards. I decided like, okay, this is really cool, but I really want to do something a lot bigger. And I realized that the opportunity was there for me to do something bigger. I mean, I did start other cool stuff. I mean, I started an investment fund uh, with, with a, with a group of Dutch called Spark. I was doing all kinds of cool stuff in Liberia. I was working at the university with with entrepreneurs. So, so yeah, I was doing a bunch of stuff. But then Ebola happens. I have to shut down for a while. Is I'm trying to make the long story short. I go back after Ebola, start to restart the factory, but I don't have customers. So I start a brand just as like a test. And that goes pretty well. And then I need some money to to expand that brand. And I'm talking to, you know, finance folks in London and they're all kind of like, yeah, sounds cool. Um, but like, we would love to invest way, way more than, than you have the capacity for. And so I was like, oh man, um, you could just write me a bigger check, but that didn't really work out. So, um, so then I just started putting together this deal that, uh, is, is closing now that could require a check the size that they, they would want to give me. And so, so yeah, this is kind of my big, uh, my big debut. When do we get uh, official news on this? What do you think? I think December 14. I think we're just under 60 days away. Oh, that's, that's really exciting. Yeah. That's really, so that's, that's here. That's practically here. Yeah. yeah. 60 days away, 10 years of work. You're 60 days away from, uh, Totally. Some clear direction on what the next 10 years are going to look like, huh? Totally. This is my, my one sort of, uh, my one sort of big question here. Uh, it just comes to mind because you mentioned you had a Dutch partner and this is something I've been thinking about lately. 400 years later. Yes. The Dutch, I got to love them. My, my lady comrade is, uh, from the Netherlands. Oh, that's they great. Cer- they certainly don't seem to take a lot of responsibility you know, for their key role in the transatlantic slave trade. And in particularly yeah. the slavery that so impacts the United States. Do you feel, as a businessman doing business and expanding in Africa, that the colonial powers have taken any real steps toward recognizing culpability, you know, for Africa's pillaging, for the state that it's in now? And, and if they haven't, do you think it's necessary for a strong sort of, ideally, I guess, unified Africa in the 21st century? Or we just move past it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a staunch Pan-Africanist. I think I, I would say that the biggest issue with Pan-Africanism is that we didn't follow the Liberian mo- model, which, you know, uh, uh, William Tubman, sort of, I would say the, the father of, 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 of really modern Liberia was trying to take people down. And instead, we went down this sort of Pan-African socialist path of, of Kwame Nkrumah. And, and, and I think that that did a lot of damage to the Pan-African movement, quite frankly. Um, so, so, and not because there's anything inherently wrong with socialism, by the way, but because, like, how does Ghana become a socialist state when, like, Ghana 
doesn't have the infrastructure to do the right. basics yet. We can't really talk about, you know, universal basic income or something like that. Yeah. So like, so what I think some of the great forefathers who really got sidelined, uh, particularly um, uh, Tubman and, and Hufet Boigny in, in Ivory Coast and actually Ali Selassie, if we're being really true, I know that that's going to be controversial, is that these guys were like actually super conservative and they were like the three guys who actually knew how to keep colonial powers in check. Um, some people don't think so about Hufet Boigny, but I think if they did the research, they'll actually see it's true. Um, and I say all that with a preface that, like, I'm the biggest Tomas Sankara fan. I'm actually writing a script about Sankara as like a side project right now. Oh, that's like, He's he's a lost uh, a lost martyr. Yeah, say. exactly. So I love Sankara. You know, my wife is Burkina Bay. So 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 I love. So so to answer your question, no, I don't. I don't really lay this at the hands of the European powers. I, I don't at all. And in fact, I would even venture to say. I'm not sure if you know really about my libertarian streak, Bob, but my last name is Liberty. You got you got to deal with it. Uh, <laughs> I would even venture to say uh, that that feudal powers in 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 pre-colonial Africa are as much, if not more, to blame than than the the, the colonial powers. I think that gives the colonial powers way too much credit uh, for for this whole thing, and and definitely. The Arabian powers, I mean, the Arabs, like, basically invented the slave trade, and there's, there was ridiculously far more brutal than anything that we saw in Europe or the United States. They literally used to castrate all African men that they had working as slaves. So, so like, at the end of the day, yeah. So, so at the end of the day, my, my point is, and, and where I'll stay, and this is super Sankara-ish, so even though I went a little bit conservative on everybody, we'll, we'll end on a nice, liberal, politically correct high note, is that <laughs> what I love about Sankara is that this idea that we need to divorce ourselves from our past. Of course, you know, my dad's a historian. I love history. History is amazing. I read history all day. I, I love it. That being said, we have to divorce ourselves from that past so that we can create the future from nothing. Like the future has way more to do with influencing who we need to be in this moment than the past does. And so I want to start with this vision of this pan-African state um, and of Africa in all of her glory. Um, and I don't really need Europe to give me permission to do that or whatever. In fact, the number one thing that I hope the African Union, for instance, doesn't do. The Pan-African State is already the official policy of the African Union. But the problem with the African Union is at least a third to 40% of our funding comes from European countries. So the Europe is always just like, oh, just do what we did. And they want to hand us a European Union-style version of the African Union. And in my humble opinion, the European Union isn't exactly going so great. Like, we just had Brexit. We had Greece. <laughs> Let's yeah. not take their model. Let's do it. Let's do something different. Um, so, so my hope in all of this is that we as Africans and the diaspora, African-Americans, Haitians, Jamaicans, all of us, we get together and we say, listen, this is the Africa that's going to be in the future. And this is how we're going to organize. And no, I don't think we need anything from you. Everything that we possibly need uh, I hope we don't need oil, but we got the oil. I hope we don't need uh, uh, any other pollutants. We have the steel. We've got the coltan. We've got the young labor force. We we got everything we need. Um, but what we don't have right now is a smart way to organize the capital because, unfortunately, we're split up as 54, 55 if we count Western Sahara, separate countries. And I think that the moment that we decide that that's a really bad idea and we don't want to do that anymore, um, we'll, we'll see something spectacular. But again, and, and again, like Sankara, you notice that Sankara talked a lot about European imperialism and fighting down the French, but he talked just as much and took just as much power away from the chiefs. And if you want to look at how Burkina Faso became food independent in four years, in four short years, this 33-year-old kid became their president was that he decided, I'm going to take all the land from the chiefs 
and I'm going to give it directly to the people. And as soon as he did that, everybody grew their own food and they were food independent within four years. So, yeah, you can talk about France and all the way that France was holding you down, but the damn chiefs were holding you down, too. And those are the people that we got to check. Wow. Well, I cracked open one there, didn't I? That's great. Anyways, hey, these are, this if, is my favorite topic. If you can't no, and if, if you're uh, if and we didn't rehearse this beforehand, guys, we didn't. This is just <laughs> what happens in a podcast. But Sankara, Thomas Sankara, fascinating guy. If you're listening to this, you don't know him. Uh, there's a great book I've read it called um, Thomas Sankara Speaks, and it's Ooh, a collection. Great it's one. a collection of of real wisdom from a uh, yeah young young amazing human who unfortunately. Uh, was cut down by the powers that be. Yes. And we're all, you know, U.S., a lot of, there's a lot of culpability there, what the story is. But when he talked about the documentary there, it was like, uh, or the script, that's great. Yeah. Because I've gone looking for good docs and things like that. And just kind of seems like time has sort of passed Sankara by a little bit if you are in the United States looking for information. Yes. You know, that book yeah, yeah. Is I mean, everywhere, yeah. even in Burkina, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, my, my, my wife is Burkina Bay. I've been spending a lot of time with his family when we go to Burkina Faso in, in, in Ouagadougou just to, you know, hear stories from them and, and, and have them influence the script. So, yeah, right now I got the rights to that story. Uh, uh, CAA, my, my boy, Ozzy uh, Manakana is, is representing me. And 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 hopefully we'll 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 make a great film out of it. But you know, it's not going to be. I definitely recommend that people read the book and do all that stuff because the film is going to be entertaining. It's gonna it's it's there's no more Shakespearean story. You know, the guy was you know basically mowed down by his best friend. And and again, this is this is exactly what we say. You know, you talked about the U.S. involvement, CIA. Of course, there was some CIA interference there. You talked about. The, um, the the French, everybody believes the French killed Sankara. Okay, we get it. They're the colonial power. They wanted this. A lot of people don't know, but if you watch the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a bunch of Liberian guerrillas admit to killing Sankara. So they're right, the ones right, who actually right, pulled right. the freaking trigger, number three. And then number, but number four, who ends up really killing him is his best friend, his brother. The guy, the, the porch that we go sit with his uh his family on is the same porch that they used to have dinner on together every night. Him and Blaze, they were best friends in the world, completely inseparable. And and they end up getting to a place where Blaze had to remove his best friend in order to take power. Oh and and I'm going to give you a little bit of a teaser of the script right here. And what really was the wedge that grew between them was a woman. Really? It is getting Shakespearean. It's getting super bruh. Shakespearean up in here. And the story is yeah. deep, bro. I'm telling oh, you. The story man. is deep. Well, these movies, I know we're diverging a lot now, but who cares? <laughs> I remember as a kid, you know what turned me on to uh, the broader world as a kid that grew up in northern, northern California, completely yeah. cut off from anything? I stumbled into that movie, um, which might suck now, I don't know, but Cry Freedom, about Steve Biko. Um, yeah, wow. And that movie opened me up. Is like, bam, you know, the history there. I'm like, I had no idea. But movies do that. Yeah. Movies do yeah. that. They open people up into whole different directions of, of interest and fascination and, and just thinking of, of um, these grievances that they had never known. Yeah. You know, transpired. So, so many people learn history this way. But yeah, it's great to like hear about Malcolm X or watch a video or watch a speech or watch an interview. But like Spike Lee gave us like a really great experience of, of Malcolm X in the 90s. And, and that was really, really powerful. Spike Lee ends in Denzel, I should say. And he should have won that Oscar. Well, um, Denzel was Denzel actually was uh, was it wasn't he in Cry Freedom? Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. I had, so, I had my kid Justice watch Malcolm X just like six months ago, I think. I'm like, yeah, right, you're going to start watching some movies. And this one is a big one. Yeah. You have to you then have to read the book as well. Autobiography, yeah, you know. exactly. Like, here's the movie. Here's the book. Go have fun. Justice, Dude, Todd. you haven't read that book yet, have you? I bet you have not. Todd, you're a good dad, man. <laughs> Sometimes, you're... once in a while. I got I got three sons, so I got a lot of practice. Exactly. You're a good dad, man. That's, that's really great. That's really, really great. <laughs> okay, so 
we can come back and do another podcast on uh, Pan-African futurism. But right cool. now, we're going we're gonna to wrap this one up. Actually, that would be pretty fun. And the music. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to wrap this one up. What we do with the, the Nice Work podcast, we do two pieces here. One is the guest gets to issue a challenge. It's called the Super Nice Challenge to listeners. Just like something that they can do. Uh, either as a new habit, a new a new success habit, a new nice habit, or just some, you know, like a one-off. Something they could do to make their world just a little bit nicer. You got mm-hmm. a challenge? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's something that I love to do, which is just like the first email that I shoot off every day is just thanking somebody for something that they did for me anytime in my life. So it literally, it can be a, a teacher it can be, you know, obviously my mom or one of my siblings, um, but just making like the first email you send every day, just like a real authentic note of gratitude to somebody to like kick off your day. Well, that's what a great way to put yourself into a mindset of gratitude too. Totally. And recognizing it for future recipients, right? Totally. And like, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I got to think about it. Like, all right, what has what has somebody done for me? And then you're like, oh, you know what? And and sometimes it's like really random stuff. Like, you know, with even like an old friend that I haven't talked to for a while that was just like, man, you know, I remember that time that like somebody said something to me that was like a little bit racist or a little bit weird. And you were just like, nah, you know, or like stood up for me or like whatever. So it just makes you really realize, I think, all the wonderful things that people have done for you in your life and how there's nothing... And this is my my the best way and probably my drop mic moment of the podcast. None of this, not raising millions of dollars, not starting a first fair trade factory, not being able to complete the deal that I'm working on now. None of it happens without the ridiculous generosity of other people, their time, their money, their whatever. And so like there's so many things that and so many just like kind, tiny gestures that people I've done that have made a huge difference in my life. And that's really like the space I try to live in every day. All right. I'm accepting that challenge. I hope the rest of y'all do as well. Starting, uh, it could be today or you could put it on your calendar for tomorrow. Tell you what, just put it on your calendar. Put it on your calendar for tomorrow morning, early, not while you're already in your work day because you'll just like hit snooze or delete. And then put it on, this is what I do, put it on, set it to repeat daily. All right. Set it to repeat daily. You can ignore the Saturday and Sunday one. Just do this Monday through Friday. That's the new super nice challenge from Shid Liberty. All right. And then lastly, what we have is you, we, we flip this around a little bit where you can ask, the guest can ask me a question. Any question, I never edit my replies, just throw it at me. So what was the favorite part of your wedding, man? Oh, favorite part? Wow, that's a great question. That would be the, how simple it was. You know, it's, uh, there's three people there, we're just in and out. It was just so quick and clean and perfect. It wasn't a singular thing because obviously during COVID, weddings look really different. Exactly. They look really different. And that was really great. It was just, it was essential. Everything was essential. There was not a wasted flourish, you know, and I don't mean that in a way of like, it was sterile or um, yeah. you know, factory line, it was just essential. Perfect. Lucky. I can lucky tell man. you that um, one of the things that, and we had like a big New York wedding and a, you know, blah, 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 church wedding and then, you know, after party and this and that. And um, it was big. It, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the only thing that I'll say is that like at the end of the wedding, I was like exhausted. And I was like, I, I didn't really, of course I like got to marry Georgie and that was like the best thing ever. But like the party wasn't like for me to enjoy. Like I got to talk to everybody for like three seconds. You know what I mean? And like, and so I always say that like, yeah, if, if I, um, anytime I think about doing big events now, I'm always just like, no, I think let's just keep it really small. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chid, thank you so much for being on today and uh, really appreciate talking to you, really appreciate learning a lot about what you're doing as well as just, you know, from you about, you know, African history and the potential there and what you're going to be doing, which is probably going to be more than uh, this, the MIA network 
you know, before you're all said and done, probably a lot more. My guess is that's going to be a launching pad for uh, even more progress and even more uh, beneficial structures. So your, your lips to God's ears, my friend. Todd, it's always a, a pleasure to be with you, man. And I appreciate everything that you're putting out in the world, man. I'm super nice forever. So there you have it. A super nice conversation with the super nice, super intelligent, and super motivated Chid Liberty. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I hope you always enjoy these conversations. What's my takeaway from this one? You know, a takeaway is just a reminder of the power of the right model, okay? So Chid is putting together a model that will benefit people and investors and the end consumer much better than the typical manufacturing model, the typical apparel model does today. And and that model can be replicated. There's no reason why Apple, uh, Nike, Uh, Others that are manufacturing in China um, or in Africa and in Africa can't do a better job of being super nice and sharing the wealth. Apple's sitting on how many trillions of dollars? I don't know. But that sure as heck isn't being reinvested into any communities. You know, Jeff Bezos personally is sitting on God knows how much money. What's he doing with it? Throwing a, a token million or... 10 million or 100 million every now and then because people are complaining that he's not doing anything philanthropically. Yeah, the man doesn't do anything. And here's Chid with a whole lot less doing a whole lot more than the world's richest man. That's impressive. That is super nice. Now, I hear some of you out there going, ah, there's no obligation for people with money to give it away. You're right, there isn't, but it's damn nice when they do, isn't it? Hmm? And isn't it damn nice when they build it into the fabric of what they're doing? Instead of building billions off the labor of others and then giving back a tenth, a hundredth of a percent of it. I'm kind of calling out Jeff Bezos here and and a lot of other people, right? Because Chid's model is one that they should model their own business after. That's what I believe, all right? I think that would be a much super nicer world, way more than 10% nicer because the impacts of that, the impacts of that kind of investing in people is, it would be widespread. Anyway, I'm getting worked up. I'm just going to stop there. You guys get it. I'm, I'm, what am I, a commie socialist? No, I'm neither one of those. I, I don't believe in any particular dogma. I just believe in doing better business that benefits more people and planet and animals. All right. You watch these David Attenborough uh, documentaries and it just makes you want it makes you cry, makes you cry. Right. Because we're not doing the best that we can be doing. So Chid, Chid, uh, he's taking a big step in the right direction. I love it. OK, I'm done rambling. I appreciate all of you. Thanks for being part of the Super Nice Club. Thanks for listening to these podcasts. If you have any um, suggestions, recommendations like for me to talk less, that's fine. Just let us know. Let me know. And I'll talk less. It's great. Okay, till next week. Stay nice. I'm putting down my rifle and I stood in this war. I'm closing my account at the angry store. I just want to be nice. And baby, that's the rub. That's why I'm joining the super nice club. So come on in. The water is warm. You and I can wait out this passing storm. Just want to be nice. So what? Big deal.